welcome once again to my favorite thing to do. It is Breakfast All Day a la carte, where I get to see my friends and talk to them about how interesting they are. <laughs> and the, you're already laughing. The woman across from me is one of the coolest, smartest, most genuine people I know. And she's beautiful and she's fun. And her name is Lauren Savan. That is some intro. It's going to be hard to live up to all of that. There's so much pressure. <laughs> Especially in the morning. Just to show up and be you. But if you guys can see Lauren, she looks radiant at 11 o'clock oh, in the morning. Oh, wow. Thank you. Very generous. Your inner glow. Good lighting shine, in here. Shines through, yes. Um, so we'll talk about your career in television and in various acting mm-hmm. things that you have done. Many of you might know Lauren from Drunk History. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in a new episode coming out this summer. Okay. We'll get to that yeah. for sure. And, uh, but you and I have been friends for a long time. So a I will, I will time. ask you what I ask everyone who comes on here. How do we know each other? We knew each other through your, your other half. Mm-hmm. Actually, mm-hmm. that's how we met mm-hmm. because, um, not only did I know him from years and years and years ago at Fox News Channel, but when I moved out here, um, we reconnected and, and he was my boss. Yes. <laughs> but I recall meeting you in New York and I'm not sure you yeah. remember meeting me, but at, at a couple of things for your then longtime boyfriend, Rick Leventhal, right. parties, basketball games. Oh yeah, the parties, yeah. And I, I know you were always running around, so we were sort of like, hi, how's it going, acquaintances? No, of course I knew of you. <laughs> See, I didn't know if you remembered me from back in oh, those days. Very much so. Um, there were a lot of us at Fox News <laughs> Channel, you know, and everybody had a spouse and everybody had a someone. Um, yeah, I definitely knew who you were mm-hmm. back then. And back then, I remember, um, I think you were on The View. I tried out for The View. Yeah. And I remember <laughs> thinking, like, wow, that's so cool. That's so awesome. Mm. Um, no, just that you did it, you know? Because I was still producing, I think, at that point and not knowing, you know, what I wanted to do with my life. And I thought it was so cool that you just decided, yeah, why shouldn't I just go for it? Well, the the way that came about is kind of weird. We're here to talk about you, but I will br- <laughs> briefly explain how Please. it is that I got a tryout for The View. So I was in New York working for the Associated Press. I was an entertainment writer. I was not at that point a full-time film critic. I was covering everything from like, you know, the Grammys to whatever. And um, The View was losing Lisa Ling. Right. And they were looking for, no, no, Debbie Matinopoulos. No, oh. no, 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 Lisa, Lisa Lang. Lisa Lang is who it was. And they were looking for a host. They were doing a host search. Right. This is 2003. And so I wrote a story about the fact that they were looking for a host. And then for the hell of it, I pitched to my editor. I said, oh. I want to try out for The View and do a first person story and write about what that's like to, you know, to be in hair and makeup and the costuming and to be Absolutely. on that set. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? If it works out and you like me and I like you, you've got a host. Great. If it doesn't work out, it was fun. You've it's got a story. You've got a nice story. I've got a great story about it. You've got publicity for your search. And I was like one of the second or third people that did it. And, um, and Meredith Vieira kissed me. Wow. She made out with me live on air. That was back when that was acceptable. That was okay. Right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it's, a, it's true. It's a different world now, 16 years later, but it was right after that Britney Spears and Madonna kiss at oh, the VMAs. Right. And so she wanted to reenact that with me, but nobody on set told me that was going to happen. Well, you can't plan something like that. Yeah, and no one, no one said, Christy, Meredith's going to come kiss you at yeah, surprise. No, no. She got up out of her seat and like walked around the desk to the other opposite side where I was, and she grabbed my face and she kissed me. Wow. Yeah, and I had no idea it was coming. But that will live on forever, <laughs> you and Meredith. It's on YouTube. See? It's sad. So, um, yeah, so, so that's, that's lovely that you remember I that. I love that's that really story. Funny. Yeah, that's a great story. I didn't have the whole story. I just yeah. knew about the, the tryout, but yeah, fantastic. But, but within like the first half an hour of, of being there, I'm like, I don't you want this job. You made news. No, no, I made news, but also before I made news, I'm like, I do oh, not want this that job. you knew that was not for you. Yeah, this is like a miserable place, and everyone's oh, sniping at each other, Yeah. And was angry all the time. Yeah, you probably does. <laughs> some level. I didn't think I had an actual shot at it, but it was fun. Um, anyway, so but you are from New York originally. Long before yeah. we were good friends here in LA, you are from New York originally, from Long Island. Yes. What town in Long Island are you from? Well, my parents moved out around a lot. We changed schools like three times before I got to high school. Um, but my mom still lives in the, in the house I, you know, basically grew up in. Um, in Huntington, in Greenlawn, actually, but near Huntington, Long Island. And wh- how far is that from Manhattan? <sighs> um, a lifetime 45 away. minutes. <laughs> yeah, it was a lifetime away, but 45 minutes. On Long Island Railroad. Yeah, yes. on the Long Island Railroad. <laughs> Next stop, Huntington. Um, <laughs> and it was, at the time when I grew up, I felt really lame that I lived in Long Island because I would go to summer camp with kids that lived in the city, and I thought they were so much cooler than me, and they had doormen, and they had just a lot more... 
um, independence because they could run around the city by themselves and I needed rides everywhere because we Mm -hmm. lived on Long Island. So I kind of, I resented (laughs) my life on Long Island until um, I got into news and I got hired back in Long Island and it gave me such a different uh, sense of where I grew up. I really became to love it and appreciate it and be so grateful that I got to grow up there because it is a pretty great place to live. But at the time, it seemed kind of like lame, tame suburbia. Yeah, yeah that, you know, your mom drives you everywhere because <laughs> you can't go anywhere on your own. And um, the kids in the city would just, you know, mock you as like suburban bridge and tunnel. And you just, you felt less cool. And now I realize we got such a great um, perspective living on Long Island because it's, it's, it's 6 million people. I mean, it's its own... Um, entity. And there's so many different areas of Long Island. Everybody says the same thing. If you live on Long Island, um, you only know all of the towns that are west of you because everybody's always heading into the city. So the further east out you are, the less people even know you exist, you know, besides the Hamptons. So I learned about all these places. Like I would get sent out on these stories. I'm like, where's that? I mean, Long Island's a really finite place. And yet there were so many places, (laughs) Hop Hog and Babylon and Hicksville and (laughs) Center Reach, Um, And luckily, because all those weird names, I had the pronunciation. Right. Uh, Did you have an accent? Did you have a serious New York accent? I had a serious Long Island accent. Yeah. How was Long Island accent different from a Manhattan accent? Or is it? it's, It's... it's a little whinier. It's just a little whiny. You say coffee and water and coffee regular. And I worked really hard to to lose my Long Island accent, especially when I went away to college and people were like, you're from Long Island. They could tell right away. So I worked hard to lose it. And oddly enough, my mother, who's a speech pathologist, helped me learn standard American, even though she's the worst Long Island accent. So she has the accent. Still. Oh, it's heavy duty. Yeah. <laughs> but she can teach you but how to use it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did you have the bangs that went up and down? Correct. Okay. Yes. I did too. Growing um, up in the Valley, it's like that too. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you have curly bangs? Because curly bangs were an awful period for me as well. Because you, yeah, you would take like a curling iron and you would curl them back, back and, and then, then we also forward. curl them back down Correct. and tease and spray. Um, I think I had a perm at that point and I didn't realize that my wow. hair was naturally wavy. Oh. And, but I made it tighter, right? Sure. So I, I feel yeah. like the valley probably was a lot, lot Long Very Island similar. in the eighties. I think we shared the same fashion, <laughs> the, the, the French cuffs yeah. and the hair that looked like someone could surf down your tube on your bangs, <laughs> right? Like yes, and and the the, the giant belts. And all the Madonna wannabe stuff. Oh, yeah. And the, and the shoulder blade. And the shoulder pads, shoulder rather. Pads. Yes, yeah, for sure. That was amazing. And uh, and blue eye blue eyeliner and mascara. Mm-hmm. Aqua you- for me, but... Because <laughs> you could. Yeah. So, um, so you're living on Long Island. You're normal high school girl going to school. What, what, what was Lauren Savon like in high school? Um, <laughs> A fully Lauren formed person. <laughs> was... Um, I was uh, in middle school... Oh, Here's the, the the short and the long of it. My parents got divorced when I was about 11 or so. And at that time, I was going to yeshiva. I was going to a really religious Jewish school that my, oddly my mother wanted me to go to because she never grew up with religion. And she thought this would give her kids like a serious religious background. So when they got divorced, no one wanted to pay for this school anymore. So I got like thrust into public school oh after God. being in this like really religious school. Like it was the first time I even met kids that weren't Jewish. Was it shocking? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also exciting. I was like, oh, Santa, you guys celebrate Christmas. Like, this is so exciting <laughs> to me. so exotic. Yeah. <laughs> and also the difference in my education changed dramatically because it, in that school, particularly it was competitive and it was a lot of work and it was a lot of prayer and you're learning another language. And when I got to public school, it was like, school's lame. Like anyone who cares that much about school is a loser. And so, of course, my grades, like, slid dramatically, and I just cared about hanging out with friends and making new friends, and um, school didn't become important to me. And I I, I was really lazy. And I also felt like I could get away with it because my parents were going through a divorce, Mm -hmm. and everyone's like, oh, just, you know, let's not give her too much pressure. Let's let her fail basically. <laughs> Did you and fail? I wasn't failing. I was getting like C's, but, mm-hmm. but I was brighter than that. I could, Clearly. I could do the work. Mm-hmm. I just was lazy. And so my, my parents finally decided that they would pay for me to go to a better school because this wasn't working. It wasn't the best public school anyway. So, um, my dad insisted that I go to this school, um, called Portledge Prep, which was like a college preparatory. And it was on this like beautiful estate out on Long Island, like what you would imagine, like Great Gatsby. 
um, this beautiful estate and we rolled up into campus and I was like, I'm not going to a lame school like that. And we, and I was like, this is beautiful. It looked like a country club. Yeah. Was it intimidating to drive up to that? It was like, I couldn't believe it was school. Like kids were just out on the lawn, like listening to music. It looked like college campus almost. Mm. They were like playing lacrosse, which I'd never (laughs) seen before. And, uh, and after we took the tour, I was like, yeah, all right, I'll go here. This, this, might, not cool. suck. this might not suck. This might not suck. Yeah. And thank God he made the best decision for me because, you know, I had a class of 20. So you can't mess up. I mean, you had to be, you had three people in my Spanish class. Like, if you're not in class, they will come find you. Donde estas? Por qué no estas en clase? You got it. Yeah. So that's why I think um, I ended up going to college because my dad insisted that I, that I straighten out. Would it be possible that you would just not have gone to college if you had remained no. at, like, screw-up middle school? No. They would have never let me not go to right. college. I was never an option. Mm-hmm. I never heard them ever say, like, they would always threaten me, like, you're not going to go to college. And the threat would be, like, everybody you know is going to go. Mm-hmm. And you'll be home, like, working at, you know, TCBY or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's the country's best yogurt that for was. those of you who don't live in New York. <laughs> it, was it only a New York thing? I don't know. They might have had them in they Texas. They might have had them around, but that was here. huge. We have yogurt land here. Yeah. Um, so you go to George Washington. Now, did you yeah. know in high school, did you know at this prep school, did journalism interest you back then? Did storytelling yeah. interest you back then? Yeah, I, I thought I would be a writer. Um, I, you know, I became editor of the school paper by my junior year, um, and I was really into writing. I was into creative writing. I was into j- writing journalism, and I thought that that's what I would do. It didn't occur to me that TV might be an option, but... Um, and what about that interest to you back then? Um, I watched so much news with my dad and he died my freshman year of high school. So that's hard. It almost cemented my, Mm -hmm. my feeling that that's what he always wanted to do, but didn't. And so that's what I'm going to do. Um, and you were really close to your dad. I really close. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was rough. It was a tough time. Um, but also he was 46. That's really young. How did he die at 46? Cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he just, it wasn't checked until it was too late. So that's really hard. It was hard to, uh, to come to terms with that. And also to realize that I only had my mom left because at that time we just weren't getting along at all. And I felt like, Oh my God, that's it though. That's all I have. Um, and, and then you guys figured it out though, you because you're, you're very out. close now. I know. Oh you yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Mm-hmm. Of course. But mm-hmm. you know, the teen angst years are rough between mothers and daughters. Oh yeah. We had door slamming so, my mom exactly. and I, and you have a younger sister too, mm-hmm. right? Okay. How much yeah. younger than you is she? She's uh three and a half years younger than me. So when I was a senior in, in high school, she was a freshman. So and were you guys buddies? After my dad died, we became much, much closer mm-hmm. again. Like we realized that this is all we have. Um, yeah, it makes you, you look at people in your life a lot differently when you lose someone close. And she was so much younger. I felt part of me had to take care of her. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it worked out. The silver lining in all of it is we got along so much better. The whole family did after mm-hmm. that. So. Mm-hmm. so so journalism is something that you and he shared, though. So that yes. was part of the inspiration then. Yeah. Okay. Did you study journalism at George Washington? Yeah, I Were, did. Did you do that political journalism major? I did. Yeah, See, I, I political journalism. I wanted to do that too. So I applied to a bunch of different schools. One of them was George Washington and got in there and I almost wanted to do that political journalism major. Right. I thought I wanted to be a White House correspondent. Right. Is that what you thought you wanted to do? I thought so. Well, yeah. the reason I took that, I, I initially entered in, in general journalism and communications, I think. And then I started interning at Fox News Channel, which had just started. Mm -hmm. They just opened a DC, um, bureau. In 1996? Seven. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I was hired as like a runner basically to just go run errands. But on Sunday morning, which is when I worked, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning, be there by five. When you're in college, I want you to understand how (laughs) much sacrifice that is. You're still awake from the night before. I would roll in sometimes (laughs) from the night before. And, um, you know, you're meeting all these congressmen, all of these senators, all these influencers. And I decided, well, I want to know the goings on on Capitol Hill and I wanted to understand it better. And then I switched to political journalism. So how do they teach you to do that? Because as you say, so much of the, of the doing of it is the running around Congress. How do you actually learn to cover politics? I don't think they teach you especially, particularly how to cover politics. What they teach you is a lot more about civics, right? And they teach you how politics works, how legislation works, how how to cover a bill that's going through, you know, like where who you want to talk to and wh- who's who you need to talk to basically, because those are really confusing things for any journalist, really. 
Um, so complicated. To understand, yeah, our, our political system is so complicated. And, you know, you just they basically just told you the bare basics. Like, what is the majority whip? And what is the, you know, that kind of stuff. That I, I don't know that I would have learned unless I took political courses mm-hmm. otherwise. So. so you're working for Fox News Channel while you're still in college, right. correct? So Fox News Channel back then is not at all no. like Fox News Channel is now. Correct. No one knew right. what the what the heck I was talking about when I said I worked for Fox News Channel. Like, what is that? The only 24-hour news channel at the time was CNN. Mm-hmm. And I would say, oh, it's like CNN, but it's through Fox. I mean, it didn't have that, any kind of political... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Bent? Slant? Yeah, or reputation right. that it has now. It was just this, you know, this little engine that could, this little cable network that was scrambling to try and compete with CNN, and everybody thought that was a joke. Um, and they had no money and, uh, you know, not nary <laughs> any of the resources <laughs> that CNN had. But um, it was a great place to start because it was non-union. So I started off as a runner, and I just kept trying every job there, like teleprompter operator and you know logging scripts and delivering research packets and everything anything they would give me to do um that's really helpful then because you you knew have the story together and in from every aspect of it exactly okay. and i mean if it's a union shop they're never going to let you edit something on your own they're never going to let you touch tape at all they're never going to let you um go out on a shoot or you know things like that that that, that i was really grateful i got to do because you really get to get an idea of like what does this person do what does that person do um and what it looks like all yeah. behind the scenes. I interned at KABC the summer after oh, the yeah. riots. Oh, so wow. 1992. But yeah, you know, it's it's a union, so I couldn't edit anything. I couldn't shoot anything. I couldn't even write an actual script. I logged a lot of riot footage. Right. And I went out on shoots with various photogs and did lots of different kinds of stories, but I couldn't actually ever touch a, a camera. Right. You know, so you're lucky you had all that, that great experience then. Yeah. I mean, I remember running teleprompter for tony snow oh my sunday morning he was a wonderful man wonderful i used to do his show on sundays he was a lovely sweetheart guy yeah oh the sweetest and Mm -hmm. i just remember it's such a nerve-wracking job because it's so thankless like no one even knows you exist until you mess it up and then they're like who the hell is on prompter (laughs) (laughs) but um but you got it right yeah i mean he was so kind to me and and understanding yeah so what was your first on-air job what was your first market? It didn't come for a long time. Um, because I started at Fox News Channel behind the scenes, I kind of stayed behind the scenes. I got hired right out of school to work the election as like a PA, a production assistant. They sent me to California to cover the Democratic Convention out here in the year 2000. And then from there, I met a bunch of producers in New York. And then I got hired up in New York at first to work on Judith Regan's show. Oh, my she God. had like a, a little show. I think it ran at like 2 in the morning on Saturdays. And she basically just had all the people on that she gave book deals to, and she would interview them. And, um, you know, because I was so new and green, they put me on her show, and she was an amazing person to work for because she was a tyrant, (laughs) but also you just learned how to deal with that because I think it's important to know how to deal with a boss that's not necessarily a fan of yours. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, now I, I loved that experience so much because it was. I have so much material and so many great stories. From it. At the time, it, she terrified me. I mean, it was. It's your first job out of yeah, school. I was like 22, 23. You're yeah. young. You want to do everything right. You care. Yeah, yeah. And, okay. I remember she told me like, your notes are very pedestrian. <laughs> and I was like, oh, is that good? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm walking across the street and cars aren't hitting me. Right. So that's a good thing, right? Um, so you, you work for her. You're doing all this behind the scenes stuff. I feel like at some point you go to News 12 in Long Island then. So I'm working for her and then yeah. I'm working for... Or, you know, I kind of worked my way up the ladder behind the scenes and producing for Fox News Channel, which, again, was now gaining a bit of ground. This was 2001. Mm 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. I was working for the morning show then, Fox and Friends. I was in the control room when it happened. I remember staying at at Fox News Channel for, like, a week straight. Like, maybe I went home once or twice. Um, What a crazy week to be at, you know, a news outlet. And then um, I was at... Fox and Friends for a while, I want to say like five or six years. And I realized I'm, I'm either going to try and be on air now or I'm not. Like the path I was on was overnight line producer if I really wanted to get up to the top. And I was like, is that really what I want to do? So I started making a tape and sending it out. And it took me about a year to actually even get a hit. <laughs> um, and uh, I got hired in Elmira, New York. How far away is that from the city? 
it's about three and a half hour, four hour drive. Okay. It's not too far away, but it was like a lifetime world yeah, away. It was like yeah. a time machine. <laughs> Because <laughs> having been in Manhattan, yeah. and in the middle of you know, cable news channel, working for cable news channel, we're for a national network, and then going to Elmira, New York, where they're like, "You're going to cover the church bake sale oh today." My God. And I'm like, "This is a news story." Were you one man banding it? Were you having? Luckily, a I was not stuff? a one man oh. band. They did have a shooter for me. Um, we had one live truck. Oh my God! And the rest was all just taped, you know, stories. Um, what market number is Elmira, New 173 York? One seventy-three. It was. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is now. It's one seventy-three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just this really small town market. But I was the morning anchor, so I was on every single day, and I reported for the noon show. So it's a great way to cut your teeth and get experience. And back then, that's the only way to get it. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. would tell you you can't stay in New York if you want to get on air. You have to go somewhere tiny and small where you'll make mistakes. Um, now I don't think that really applies anymore, but now there's just YouTube. Now there's YouTube. Now, now it's like, look YouTube. at my followers. It's yeah. immediate. Yeah. You don't have to have yeah. any actual experience. But thank God I did mm-hmm. because it really, I learned so much doing that every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That I had a similar path in newspapers. Like I thought I wanted to be on air and then I realized I liked writing more and I was the editor, one of the editors at the daily campus at SMU oh. and then you send out clips, right? It's, it's so different. That was 1993. You send out clips to newspapers right. and you say, Hey, I'm looking for a job. Right. And so my first job was at the Shreveport times in Shreveport, Louisiana. Right. And so you go and you make your mistakes there. You cover everything, right. every possible thing. And yeah, I, I don't know what to tell people now. Like I'm sure you have, you know, young people, young whippersnappers who want yeah. to go into journalism. Yeah. And it's like, how do I get a job? And it's so different now from when we got jobs. Yeah. The whole, mm-hmm. the whole environment has changed, right? Mm-hmm. The entire complexion of journalism is mm-hmm. so different now. Um, you can create your own content. You can create your own content mm-hmm. and, um, and many do. And I, I don't know. I hate to sound so old school, but I'm like, <laughs> I did it the right way. No, I just think that I would have never gotten where I ended up without having that experience. I mean, I would watch people on Fox News Channel when I was working as a producer or a booker or whatever, and you could tell who skipped steps, mm-hmm. in my opinion. You could tell by their you know, anchoring who skipped steps, who had never been out in the field, who had never written their own copy, who had never um, you know, interviewed someone live before. I mean, these were all things that you could tell. When you get to a network, there are people that'll that'll cover it for you. There are producers that will write your questions for you. There are people that can do it. But to me, it was like, I don't want to skip any steps. I wanted to be able to do everything or at least have tried everything. Right. It shows when they can't think for themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They need to be like spoon fed all all the questions. Exactly. Or they can't like be in the moment enough to ask the right follow-up question. That's the the biggest giveaway when they don't ask a follow-up. You're like, they just gave you this gold. (laughs) They just gave you an answer that everybody can't believe that came out of their mouth and you move on to a new topic. You're like, what? But yeah, that's practice. That's experience. Mm -hmm. How'd you know you wanted to be on air? What about that appealed to you? Um, I think just, I know, again, I was at Fox News Channel for like six years before I I even made a tape and, um, Rick Leventhal had a lot to do with it because I I thought I did want to be behind the scenes. It felt gross to me to to tell people I want to be on air, like almost like, you know, now, I mean, with social media, like everyone puts everything out there. And, but at the time it was like, oh, you want to be on air. Oh, you don't care about what you're doing now, or you don't care about news. You just want to be a star. That almost felt like what I was saying to people. Like it made you seem vapid or ambitious or or vain, or just Mm -hmm. like you wanted to be a star. You didn't care about news. I mean, that was kind of what I felt. And, and Rick Leventhal to his credit, when, when we started dating, he was like, you have to tell people that's what you want to do. If it's what you want to do, no one's going to just pluck you up and say, oh, you'll be on air. You're, you have to tell people and you have to work at it and, and make people realize that you have talent and that you can do it. Um, and he really did help me put tapes together and over and over and over again, cause they're never great when you first start out, but I sent them everywhere. Christy, I mm-hmm. sent them to Bangor, Maine and Shreveport, Louisiana. I had an interview <laughs> down there and I remember they wanted me to do weather and I'd never done weather before. And I didn't know all the parishes down there. So it's many. So and they're hard to pronounce. Yes. Bozier. B-O-S-S-I-E-R. Bozier. Failed miserably on that one. Yeah, exactly. But Rick had been on air for a long time at that point. So I'm sure he had a lot of good advice and, and, you know, you, you do was. have to put your hand up in the air and say, hey, because they're not going to drive by in a van and know that, hey, you want to be on air. N- right. Mm-hmm. And I just was worried because at the time I was working there as a producer, I, knew, I was worried that people would think that I didn't care about my job mm-hmm. or that I wasn't, you know, a good producer because I wanted to be on air. And um, obviously I got over that. So, and- yeah, then after that, I was up in Elmira, New York for about two years. Oh, my God. And then how did you get back down? 
I applied to a million different television stations. It's funny. I got, I used an out I had in my contract when I signed my contract in Elmira, New York for $19,000 a year. Oh my God. They gave me a hometown out, which Rick told me to ask for. And I was like, it means that if you get hired by your hometown, they'll let you out of your deal. And they were like, she's not getting hired in New York. Like this is market 173. Like, good luck. Fine. We'll put in a hometown out for you. But I got hired by Long Island. Which is literally Which is your hometown. And it was my hometown. So I got to take my out and I went, I worked at News 12 Long Island. Do they consider News 12 Long Island market one? Is that the same? It's considered market one. I mean, it should be its own market because it's so big. And from what I hear, I think it would have been like market six or something because there's so many people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's still considered market one. So you went from market one to 73 to market one. Yeah. At age 24, 25? I was 20. Six twenty-seven. Okay. Because I remember, I thought to myself, when this contract is over, I'll be, I'll be thirty, and I thought that was a good age mm-hmm. to come back to Fox News. <laughs> so, was it a giant leap in terms of the kind of stories you were covering, in terms of the equipment, in terms of the pressure t- on you on air to make that leap to Long Island? To Long Island, um, no. I mean, the equipment was so much better, mm-hmm. and they had so much more, and it was. Um, it's a unique place to work. It's because the station was owned by the Dolan family who owned at the time MSG and the Knicks and a million other things. Um, and they owned Cablevision. So it was basically Pat Dolan's pet project to have his own news channel. So we were never for want for things. There was I always mean, money. There was always stuff. money. There was always, they always had like bagels on Friday and ice cream <laughs> parties and things like that, which I'd never seen before. Isn't it always like this everywhere? Right. I was like, this is amazing. Um, and, but they, but they also were, they were not risk takers at all. They didn't want you to, um, they didn't want a lot of personality on the air. They wanted you to look a certain way. They wanted everybody to look like kind of real estate agents and to <laughs> read the prompter and not ad lib and not, you know, and, and I think when I, by the time I got to Long Island, I thought I already had my style and I, you know, I am who I am and it worked for me great. And so I would add my own little Lauren Savanism, <laughs> which, you know, they loved me, but they were like, knock it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I had a great relationship with them there. I just thought, I'm like, why do I have to wear these suits? Like, it's so lame. No one wears these anymore. Why do I have to cut my hair like this? Like, I just felt it was so antiquated at that time. But that was their style, and they were my bosses. So, But putting you in a, in a certain kind of box does not make a whole lot of sense. Because a lot of what is great yeah. about you is that you have this, this sense of humor, and you think on your feet so well, and you're really quick-witted. And so trying to like tamp all that down does not great. It's not the best use of you. No, but at the, other, at the end of the day, I mean, I wasn't applying for a stand-up comedian job. Mm-hmm. I was applying for a news anchor job and I was the evening anchor. So oh. I was, <laughs> I was paired up with Scott Feldman, who is a 70s, so in his seventies. I mean, it was, it was, um, he was a very old school anchor man and very old school, like still wanted his hard scripts did not trust the prompter, that kind of thing, would count how many lines he had, but oh, yeah. I, but beloved, like I loved him so much because he was who he was. But for me, it, you know, to, to be paired up with someone like that, it was hilarious to me. And I would love, you know, playing jokes on him, giving him a hard time. And, um, we became really good friends. Um, but he was what they, what they wanted there, you know, and all the people that worked there had been there forever. I mean, they were the people that I watched growing up on News 12 Long Island. So, mm-hmm. I got what they wanted. It was just, I was starting to just feel my oats a bit there. Can you look back on video from that time or from Elmira and like not cringe? Very difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I look back at stuff I wrote early on and I'm like, Ooh, that's sticky. What was I thinking then? You're trying on a persona or whatever. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You're trying on a persona, but that's a great way to put it. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, of course it's going to be cringy. Anything you do when you're younger is is cringy, but I, I also look back on it and I think, wow, that was a great story I told. That was a great piece. Like I, you know, I got Emmys for working there. So I did some great work there. Um, and I just felt like I had outgrown it after a while. Sure. So you go back to Fox News Channel, and at this point, Fox News Channel is kind of becoming Fox News Channel. It's pretty big at this but point. But it's not the Fox News Channel that people know today. Well, it was ideologically. Getting there. Yeah, right? it was getting there. I mean, I remember I got hired back at Fox News Channel as the overnight breaking news anchor, um, where I really wanted to report, which was odd because I'd been an anchor my whole career up until then, but I really felt like. I wanted to report there because, again, I knew that the people that just jumped into anchoring without reporting were 
we're not as good. And I would look at people like Shepard Smith, who was amazing. He was out in the field for years and years. And it you shows know? when there's it breaking shows. news. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I, I begged them to let me report. They're like, well, you just do this for a year. And we promise you after a year on the overnights, we'll, we'll work something out with you. Um, so while I was on the overnights, Shepard Smith actually gave me the opportunity to report on Fox Report. He would let me come in at early, like, you know, in the middle of the afternoon, like 1 p.m. or something. I'd turn a story for Fox Report, which aired at 7, and then stay and do my overnight shift until 6 a.m. It's a long day. day. So it, it was a really long day. I was really excited to do it, but I was burned out. I would do that maybe two, three times a week, and I just was getting really depressed because I could not sleep during the day and that overnight shift is brutal. But I told myself, you know, do it for a year. They, t- they promised you after a year, they'd move you around. So sure enough, after a year, I went to Bill Shine's office and I was like, well, I did my year. Please, please, please. Can you find a place for me to report? And he's like, yeah, bad news. No one wants that overnight shift. <laughs> so we don't have anywhere to put you. I'm sorry. You're going to have to hang out. And I remember tears just wet like uncontrollably oh. crying in his office because you were that, tired first of all to know that there's no end to this <laughs> yeah. i was so exhausted yeah i didn't sleep that day because i had a meeting with him and um i remember feeling like oh there's no end in sight and that's when i thought i need to probably leave the other the, the piece of hay that broke the camel's back is when they hired peter Ducey to report mm-hmm. that same month Peter just graduated college. He's Steve Ducey's son. And I said, oh, he's a reporter now, but I'm still stuck on the overnights. And then I was like, all right, I got to get out of here. So I did. I took an out in that contract too. And that's when you came to LA? That's when I came to LA. Okay. So before we leave New York really fast, so ideologically, what is News Channel like at this point? Ideologically, it is definitely right at this point. Okay. Um, George Bush was president. Um the war is not going well. Um, they're trying to tamp down, you know, the war and concentrate on other things because um, it was definitely right at that point. I mean, I remember, you know, we'd get the talking points from Moody or whatever and, and what, what they're talking about. I was in a very lucky position because I wasn't, I wasn't um, an opinion person. You know, I was just covering breaking news overnight. So there was nothing that I needed to worry about as far as how I reported breaking news overnight. There was no political spin on my end, but or I would like, see yeah. what, what they would cover. I mean, I remember thinking on the overnights, they, um, my, my goal at Fox News Channel was to get back on Fox and Friends because that's the show I produced for six years. I knew it well. It was lighter. It was fun. I knew Brian and Steve so well. Like they, they had helped me out my whole career. So that was my goal. And I remember one Christmas, I was working the overnight, and they had the Christmas special that they just kept running like over and over again. And the Christmas special involved all of the Fox News personalities in their Christmas sweaters sitting around talking about their um, favorite Jesus moment when it comes to Christmas. Whether it's having you know a cake for Jesus or it's like telling their st- a Jesus story to their children or it's the church or you know mass or whatever it was. Their favorite Jesus moments in Christmas. And I thought to myself the hell am I going to say? I'm never on this show. Like I'm a Jew. <laughs> oh, my favorite moment is sitting in my dark house and watching my Christian friends across the street have fun. Um, my favorite moment is when I heard we destroyed Jesus. No, I mean, what would I have said? And that's when I thought like, maybe this isn't the best fit for me here. Maybe it's a little too political. Right. And so they were pandering to their audience at that point, right? Oh Getting yeah. Well, what they, they had want. mass. Yeah. And they had, ma- I mean, just some of the programming there was already, very, um, very Christian, right. And very, I mean, you just, you knew where it came from. That's mm-hmm. all. And I'm, and you know, not necessarily bad. I mean, right. plenty of people wanted that. They are obviously popular for a reason and not to say that, you know, other news networks didn't tilt to the left. It was just a matter of what can I contribute here? Am I conservative enough? Mm-hmm. Am I going to be that person in a Christmas sweater. <laughs> and then, so you realized you were not. Yeah. And you didn't want to fake it either. No. No. And it. if they weren't going to let me report news, I just didn't like, I didn't see where my future would be. Yeah. Well, the war on Christmas did originate there. Exactly. And John yeah. Gibson's a good friend of ours. We, Chris and yeah, I are friends with him. We, we adore lovely, him. Lovely, lovely man. He's a sweet man. But yeah, but he did have to write that war on Christmas book. So, um, right. so you come to LA. Did you have a job when you came to LA or did you just make the leap across the country? No, I had, um, at that point, a, um, an agent co- contacted me and said, I see you on Fox. They're really not doing anything with you. You know, think about leaving and I'll, I'll shop you around. And that's when the seeds kind of like, well, maybe it is time for me to go. They're not letting me report. I'm stuck on this overnight shift. I can't get off. So, uh, you know, everybody thought it was nuts to leave a contract 
where I was making so much money um, at a network, but I was so miserable. I mean, really mentally ill. I mean, that shift really did a number on me where I was just so depressed and so um, in a really dark place. And so I said, look, worst case scenario, I'll go back to News 12 or I'll go somewhere else. Um, I just got to get out of this situation. So I did. And he shot me around um, in LA, which I'd never been to. And he told me that there was a job opening at um, Good Day LA. And I loved Good Day LA. I mean, whenever I came out here and watched, I thought it was crazy. I mean, you know, the anchors were like dressed from the night before, like rolling in and they were just chitty chatting about their day. And I just thought like, this is a new show. Amazing. So when he said there was an opening, I was like, that's something totally different. I would love that. And so, yeah, I got hired as a reporter. It was, and it is a better fit for you. And at that point, a good deal. I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Because I, I thought, like, well, I'm a reporter. I'm going to cover the news. But literally the first live shot. At Good Day LA, it was like, Lauren, we're talking about our menstrual cycles, and <laughs> we want to know, like, which, where are you at? Are you going to sync up with us? And I was like, but we're covering a car accident out here. <laughs> like, what? I wasn't used to being that loose and, you know, mm-hmm. fun with news. But it probably didn't take long, I'm guessing, to get on that wavelength. No, not at all. Yeah. In fact, The Soup did a piece about how they hired me from Fox News Channel after I'd covered Iran and... Israel and, you know, all these serious stories. They had this like little reel they made up of all these serious stories I covered at Fox News. I'm like, let's see what Good Day LA has her doing. And it's like trampoline workouts and <laughs> nonsense. I feel like you did yoga on a surfboard at one point. Sure. Yeah. That rings a bell. Yoga paddleboard. Yes. <laughs> it's very big, Christy. Very no, big now they do it with goats. Now you have your goat next to you on his paddleboard. Um, so what was LA like compared to what your expectations of LA might've been? Um, you know, initially when you move here from New York, you love it because the weather is incredible. Um, but someone told me early on, they're like, you're going to love it. It's going to be really exciting and new for you for a while, but then you're going to hate it. And if you can get through that hate period, which may last a significant amount of time, then you'll be okay. Then you'll be out here for good. Um, and they were right. There was like six months, maybe a year where I absolutely hated it. I just felt like I made a huge mistake. I moved out here. I wasn't getting a contract that I was promised. I was, you know out working ridiculous hours, but I I loved the job. I just was worried that it wasn't going to last forever. And also I hated the people and people (laughs) were getting on my nerves. You know, it's a very one horse town. If you're not in entertainment or you don't work in entertainment, people's eyes just like glass glaze over. You say you work in news and people will proudly tell you, I hate the news. The news is so depressing. Like I can't watch news. And you think to yourself, oh my God, they're all having children. Like people are... (laughs) gonna you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. you feel everybody's dumb it's making me dumber i'm dumber for living out here um and i used to get really bummed out and i I was like going back to new york to look for other jobs to get back to new york um none of them really worked out so i stuck it out here and eventually i loved it again you find your own friends you find smart people (laughs) that do exist here Mm -hmm. to hang out with um and you make a little you know a little uh home for yourself yeah, and I'm guessing also if you're working at local Fox, this has happened with with Chris because Chris also worked at Fox 11. There is the expectation that local Fox is aligned ideologically with Fox that, News yeah, Channel, right? And it's not at all. It's not at all at all. No, um, it, yeah, I mean it is owned by the same company, but there was nowhere near anything political that we were told how to cover things or what to cover. Um, in fact, I would say it's probably the most liberal newsroom I've worked in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like at Sinclair, though, where no. there's definitely a top-down edict not to read all. certain kinds of scripts. Not at all. It's not. Um, I'm glad that you worked through your hatred of L.A. phase. <laughs> I'm glad you're still here. I'm an Angelina <laughs> now. Yeah. How many years have you been here now? Uh, Labor Day will be eight. Okay. Yeah. So I feel like it's a while. So L.A. is now home. For now, yeah. Okay. It's home. So you were at Fox 11 for a while. Yeah, I was at Fox 11 for almost seven years. Okay. Six, six and a half years. Okay. And then during that time, did you start doing bits in movies as well? Is that where that began, where you were playing a reporter in various films or the drug history that you did? What happened was, um, you know, the great thing about local news is that everybody watches it. When you live in a certain town, you're watching it for weather in the morning, you're watching it for traffic. So a lot of executives here watch local news. And so a casting agent in particular became a fan of mine mm-hmm. and called me in to read for a part in a movie. And I was really excited because I'd never been in a movie before. And he, you know, it's for a reporter. So it's not like I had, I had to have much range. 
<laughs> but I got what are you cast feeling? in the movie. What's your motivation <laughs> here? My motivation. I had to do some research. <laughs> um, I got cast in the movie Transcendence with Johnny Depp. Terrible movie, but I was thrilled to be a part of it. And uh, and from there, um, I realized that you know you could supplement your income because I was still freelancing at the time. I would. I didn't have. I mean, I was promised a contract, but it just never came to fruition. So I realized, okay, well, then I can do news and I can figure out what else I can do on the side. So I did a lot of voiceover work. I did a lot of um, reporter roles Mm -hmm. in TV shows and movies. And um, it's much easier to do those kind of things when people know who you are. They're like, oh, yeah, I see you every morning. Absolutely. Come in. Read for this role. Because I recall, like, I think I, I heard you before I saw you in a couple of movies. And I'm like, I know that voice. <laughs> and one of them is Transcendence because you're, like, on a giant flat screen monitor. Yeah. Part, the, the movie's about, like, what? People are watching each other all the time. You can see. Yeah. Or they're watching Johnny Depp all the time. Anyway, it's like a futuristic nightmare scenario <laughs> right. where there's surveillance and no privacy. Right, but right. you are the, the, the voice. voice on the, on the, the monitor. Yeah. I was so proud. That was really cool. It was so <laughs> cool to be a part of that, like a big movie mm-hmm. like that. Um, it, yeah, it was thrilling. And then how did Drunk History come about? Drunk History came about a lot differently. I, um, a friend of mine knows Derek Waters, and she just invited me out for drinks one night with him. And it just so happens Derek Waters like, grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and I spent my summers there, and we just had a lot in common, and we just became friendly. And he asked me, um, he had a role in Drunk History. He's like, do you want to play a role in drunk history and i mean i love that show who doesn't love it's drunk so history? great it's a great idea so i was like absolutely i do so uh i got to play barbara walters oh my god in one of the episodes so much really pressure exciting. it was but <laughs> the great thing about drunk history is like no one really looks like the people that they're playing i mean it's it's good costuming but it's not you know no one would believe that it was barbara walters but it was so great to be able to to be a part of it and just to see how it works like how they shoot the reenactments based on a, a drunk's <laughs> slurry story about history. So how does it work? So does, so the person tells the story drunkenly first and then they do the recreation to yeah. mimic that? Is that the yeah, structure so they, of it? They tell the drunken story, they edit that story, so they have the story exactly how they want it, and then they, the actors, you just listen to the story over and over and over and over again. And then while you're acting it out, they play the soundtrack loudly to just to like so you can sync up your lips it's really tough to do um but so you but if you see it it's not always perfect but and that's part of the charm too it's part of the greatness Mm -hmm. yeah of it and um it's really fun to do and uh yeah i think i'm in this other upcoming season of it too have you already shot that I play Queen Victoria. Ooh, that's a, a different costume for mm, you. Totally different costume. Was it amazing to put all the stuff on? Amazing. The jewels. And I the... will send you a, a picture. It's really spectacular. Oh, my gosh. I actually narrated one as well, but I don't think that airs this season. I think it's not till next year. What is the Queen Victoria episode about? Um, it's actually about Florence Nightingale, okay. um, the nurse. And that's played by Minka Kelly. And she's Florence Nightingale. And I guess Queen Victoria is kind of you know, wants Florence Nightingale to help her out with all these wars in Crimea and she's got all these soldiers and dead bodies. And so I'm, I'm Queen Victoria. Oh my God. It's pretty exciting. It's, it it's sounds like a fun, fun gig. Do. It's such a fun gig. Yeah. Okay. And Derek Waters is amazing. He's such a great guy. I got to, I'm sure you've probably interviewed him. I've never along. met him. Cause he's always, you know, on red carpets and he's, um, he's, uh, you know, he has like a kind of a Baltimore drawl. And I think people think that he's, you know, not interested or speaking slower, but like, that's just what he sounds like where he's from. And he's a great guy, genius and kind of brilliant. I can imagine you doing the drunk part of the drunk history too. Well, I did. I oh, taped did a narration, okay. but it's not airing yet. I think it's, they're saving it for another season. Can so. you say what you had to explain? Um, I don't think I'm allowed to okay. say what it was, but it was, um, about women. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I got drunk. What were you drinking? Tequila. Okay. Yeah. Can you pick what you drink when you do drunk history? That's the best part. So you pick what you drink. <laughs> and I thought they were just going to come over with like a cameraman and a sound guy maybe. There was like 30 people. They set up craft services in my backyard. It was like legit it was shoot. huge. Yeah. It was like a huge shoot. There was hair and makeup tent. I was like, what's happening? And then they, um, they have a specific time where they want you to drink. Like they want you to drink ahead of time so that you're nice and you know, drunk by the time he gets there, but they have, um, a medic on hand to make sure you're not too drunk. That's smart. (laughs) They have, um, yeah. So they, they, when they're done with you, they take your blood pressure and they make you blow and just to make sure they're not leaving you in a state of complete alcohol 
poisoning. That's true because theoretically, you know, they're liable for you being that shit face. Yeah, you, you <laughs> sign off a lot of, okay. yeah. You have to take a physical before you even do it. Wow. Yeah. This is serious. Mm-hmm. It's fun, but it's serious. That's fascinating. Um, so you mentioned that this episode's about women. This is sort of a good segue into where your career path has gone in the last couple of years. Um, you're rolling your eyes at yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what career path? No, um... So let's talk about that if, yeah. we, if we can, because sure. um, a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago, the, you know, the first accusations against Harvey Weinstein began right. coming out and you have one of your own, which is kind of famous, which we're not going to go into the gore details about. Yeah. It's the potted plant story. Okay. Um, but I, again, like people, I said, I had this Harvey Weinstein story. And when these stories came out, I was like, Oh good. He's finally going to get in trouble. Cause I knew for years that he was a slime ball because I had this story about me being, you know, cornered by him and him, you know, doing his thing in a potted plan. And, and it was not a secret. I mean, I literally told everybody the story. Anytime his name came up, I was like, Oh my God, I have a Harvey Weinstein story for you. And it wasn't something that necessarily haunted me or that I was traumatized by, but it was just like, this is my story because this guy is a dirtbag and disgusting. And I knew it. And I knew that other, there were definitely other women out there. So when they finally came forward, I was like, Oh, finally people are going to realize what this guy is like. Cause I couldn't believe he was still at the top of his game at that point, you know, kind of untouchable. Um, so they came out with their story in the New York times. I think it was on a Thursday maybe. And Harvey Weinstein quickly came out with an apology, although it wasn't an apology. It was like, these women are liars. They're just, you know, sour grapes that they didn't get their roles. They want, I never did anything. I'm, you know, giving money to the Democrat. I don't know what he was. It was just a all over the map, non-apology, which basically further, um, blamed these women. And I thought, that is so untrue. Like I, you know, I wish I could do something. And I remember saying to my producer at the time at Fox 11, I'm like, I have a Harvey Weinstein story. Like who's covering this? And they said, Oh, we got like Ed Lasko's on it. Don't worry about it. I was like, really? Cause I think this is going to be bigger than that. I think this is going to be a thing, but that was it. I went home for the day. Um, and the next day I got a call from a reporter at the Huffington post who had heard my Harvey Weinstein story through a friend, through a friend, through a friend. And he asked me if it was true. And I was like, Oh yeah, it's true. And then he said, well, can I write about it? Because, you know, he's blaming these women, he's calling them liars, and you could actually stick up for them and validate their stories. And I was like, well, don't use my name, but yes, you can report it. And then he called me back before it went to press, and he said, listen, I really think it's important that you use your name because you're not an actress, you're not trying to get anything from him, you're not trying to get a role from him. It would, you know, give it more um, validity that you're a generalist and this just happened to you. And I was like, I don't know if I want my, just, you know, you think in your head, like, do I want to be Googled? And every time I'm Googled, this comes up, like, this could be trouble. I called my boss, my news director. I never heard back from her. I emailed her. I didn't hear back. And then I um, called my manager and my agent. He was like, well, if you want to tell the story, it's your story to tell. I would never tell you, you know, not to. And even all the men in my life were like, don't use your name. Don't use your name. Like, you don't want to forever be connected to this. And I thought about it long and hard, but I just thought, like, if I don't use my name, I mean, when I cover a news story and people don't want to use their names when they talk to me, like, I think less of them. I think, oh, you don't really want to help out. You don't really want to put yourself out there, you know? So that was one of the reasons where I felt like I needed to have use my name and not try and hide behind something. So I did. But the story came out in the Huffington Post on a Friday night. I was like, this isn't going to make any difference. But I did my part. I, you know, I told the truth. And I thought it would just be buried by Monday. And then sure enough, Friday night, my phone just would not stop ringing. And everybody was like, you know, for interviews and what happened. And um, Megyn Kelly's show was calling me and, you know, CBS and MSNBC and all these places are calling me. I couldn't believe how fast this story got picked up. Um, And then, you know, I ended up doing all the interviews and talking to all the people and um, just got kind of thrust into this movement. Um, which was incredible to be a part of, to watch things change before your eyes, but also a bit terrifying and scary and not without drama. What was scary about it? Um, I had some people call me or email me and say, you made a huge mistake. Harvey Weinstein is a very powerful man. And, you know, you think that he doesn't have anything you want, but he can make sure you never work again. He can do this. He can do that. And I knew that, you know, I knew that he was powerful, but I thought, what does he care about some local reporter for? 
but everybody who did know him was like, oh, he'll care. Like anyone that's trying to, you know, smear his name, he cares about. So I was nervous and scared on that, on that end. And I had also talked and spoken to victims who were too terrified to come out, um, because of the same reasons. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, I don't know. I, I felt like I did take a risk on some level. Was it strange too being on the other side of the questioning? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Very strange. Having been a journalist your whole life. (laughs) Yes. And I hated it. Um, I wanted to get the story out, but I hated, um, it's funny. I, I hated the way they looked at me like with a head cocked kind of like you poor thing. That was always the line of questioning that I got from journalists. Like I know they were just trying to be empathetic and sympathetic to a, to a really difficult situation that I had to describe on camera. And I understand all that. And I'm sure that's probably what I did in the past, but in my mind, I'm like, listen, I'm not traumatized by this. I'm not, a, you know, I hated thinking of myself as a victim. I wasn't a victim. I mean, yes, this thing happened to me that I never asked for. And I was a victim in that sense, but I, I didn't feel, you know, victimized where so many of these other women did. I mean, they were victims. They had their careers destroyed. They, you know, they got out of acting. They had problems in personal relationships because of him. So you know, I, I think we all dealt with it in different ways. And, and for me, I just hated that people felt sorry for me somehow. I mean, even my mom, people would come up to my mom and say, I'm so sorry that happened to your daughter. And my mom was like, Oh my God, it happened 10 years ago. She doesn't care. (laughs) Like it was just this thing. Everybody knew it happened so long ago. It wasn't like I was home crying over it. I remember Chris knew, Chris knew. And when all the first Harvey Weinstein accusations came out, he was like, Laura's got a Harvey Weinstein story. I told everyone. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess folks who might've seen, you know, patronizing in that moment they met well of course clearly we're all trying to to say and do the right thing in the moment and i realized it made me realize like when i interview people about difficult subjects like Mm -hmm. you know how i come across is like how they will feel like they need to talk about it you know Mm -hmm. if i I need to sound more like a victim because you're making me feel like that way you know so it made me just more self-aware really and it was weird that Channel 11 wouldn't cover this with your, your element of the story. That was the weirdest part of the story. You were right there. You are a source. Christy, not only was I a source, not only was I talking to everybody else, like on every other station, but they would make a graphic about the women who were accusing Harvey Weinstein and it would show my picture and say reporter. Like I had nothing to do with the station. Meanwhile, I'm coming up next as a reporter covering something totally different. I mean, it was, it was really like, the twilight zone. Like I could not understand why my own station was acting so strange to me and keeping me off the air and giving me weird shifts. And they, I mean, the only answer I got, which was through the grapevine was that, well, you know, Fox is dealing with their own sexual harassment. Oh, right. suits, so they Roger don't Ailes. want any more attention. Yeah. But still that's was Fox weird. news channel. That's a whole different situation. That is really, totally. that's really awkward. And that really begs the question of like, um, hi, yeah. she's right here. Yeah. That's very strange. They, yeah, I went, I spoke at this woman's, um, power breakfast from the rap and I sat next to, um, this model named Zoe, um, who was also a Harvey Weinstein victim and, um, Claire, uh, Forlani, uh, Forlani, mm-hmm. who was also a victim. Mm-hmm. And we gave this big talk and we're talking and then they sent, they sent a reporter to cover the Harvey Weinstein thing and interview the New Zealand model. <sighs> and the tape editor called me. He's like, you're in this, all this video and I have to cut you out of it because so we don't weird. only want to hear her story. We don't want to hear the story of the girl who works for us. It was really weird. That's really weird. Well, you don't work for them anymore. <laughs> I know. I mean, part of the reason was all because of that and how it went down. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really awful, actually. I loved... I hated, you know, I complained about that job every single day, but mm-hmm. I loved doing what I did. I loved being a reporter in LA. I loved working there. And it was really unfortunate that, um, for whatever reason, they didn't really want me there. So they just made it almost impossible for me to stay. That's, that's very telling though. So you are better off not being there. Although you have a lot yeah. of great personal, deep, close friends there still. I yeah. Know, yeah. So. Sure. Of course. So you've done some radio since then, but how, how did being part of this Me Too movement changed the trajectory of your career? Um, it's not changed the trajectory of my career for the better. I will say that. Um, how come I, really have a tough time now finding another full-time news job. I've been told by not just executives, but agents that I make people nervous because I'm one of the women that spoke out. And so if you're still a male executive running a you know news network or a news station, um, you might not want that girl that made a big fuss to work for you. 
Um, that's basically what I was told by a couple different people that, that, you know, when you Google you, that's what comes up and people are like, oh, I don't want a lawsuit. I don't want to have to worry about what I say in the office. Meanwhile, I've never sued anyone. I've made sure I stayed out of every class action. I mean, I was not trying to get anything from this except just get the truth out there. But, um, it's had some serious backlash for me anyway. And so now I'm, um, you know, just trying to figure out the next move. That's shitty. It's shitty, and, it, and it's very yeah. telling from their perspective that they are they are, are still proactively really fearful. You know, yeah, they wouldn't weird. say it to me, but you know, you get it gets back to you that like, well, you know, she's not right for us, and uh, then you hear it's like, well, you just make people nervous. You know, these are male executives, and they see what goes on with the Me Too. They don't want you working for them that might misread something they say, or you know. Like you're looking for it. Like I'm digging around looking for a... Like, by the way, what happened with me and Harvey Weinstein was in a New York City nightclub. I didn't work for him. It wasn't a work environment. I mean, I never took any of my bosses. I never been to an HR meeting. I've never complained about anyone in my life. I mean, I'm not that employee that's always looking for something at all. So I hate that that, you know, is kind of what I'm known for. I hate that when you Google my name, this is exactly what comes. I knew this was the price for coming forward, but I didn't realize that it would be as um, as damaging as it's been. Well, I would assume that in time it would be less so. Right? Oh, I hope so. Yeah. And, and your work clearly speaks for itself and your ability to oh, do every you. kind of job speaks for itself. And you're having a lot of fun, it seems, doing you know acting bits here and there. So hopefully more of those will pan out. Hopefully, but I do love news and mm-hmm. I hope you know that I get to c- cover news again and that um, my biggest hope is that this is not my epitaph, that I can have a second act and not have Harvey Weinstein's name <laughs> attached to me in any way. That would really be my dream. Because fuck him. He doesn't deserve that. Not at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so if you could like put out a, a dream gig for yourself, put out to the universe what your dream gig would be, what is it? Um, I just love telling stories. And if I could tell them in a fun and interesting way, um, that would be my dream gig. And get paid for it. <laughs> that and, would be my dream gig. And you're traveling a ton, I know. Everybody- yeah, I'm traveling now and I'm trying to start kind of a travel site maybe, but it's a little difficult. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to do a bunch of different things and hope something sticks. Because wherever I look at your Instagram, you're in a different country. That's true. But I'm, I'm highly <laughs> skilled at hijacking other people's trips, <laughs> things that they've already planned and done. And I just, you know, if I can get a flight and meet them, great. And then... Uh, I get a trip out of it. So. You're like, I'm petite. I can fit in the I overhead. Do. I've, I'm always in the middle row of economy <laughs> all the way in the back. And that's okay. As long as I get to go somewhere new. Where is the best place you have been recently? Um, I went to Montenegro recently. Um, and it was incredible. It looks like, it looks like the Italian Riviera, except without the food. So you lose weight while you're there. <laughs> um, but it's stunningly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, the Balkans in generally are just really beautiful places that you don't think to go. I mean, it's not like spring break is a big hit in Serbia, but <laughs> but that's where I was. And what I what was does one wear for spring break in Serbia? I know. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's just like Lake Havasu. No, it's, um, it, was, it was fascinating because I love history and it's really, really old. I mean, it, like every empire has taken over that area at some point. So it has this fascinating layered history and these old ancient, you know, second 279 AD fortresses and things like that. So I, I love that stuff and I'm a total nerd, but it was, it was super fun. And I feel like you went to Mexico to learn Spanish. I did. Okay. The second my radio show was over, I thought <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make the most of this time. I'm going to work on my Spanish because I'm so embarrassed when I would be out covering the news and my like cameraman had to tra- translate or so I just was never confident enough. Like I could get by, but I wasn't confident enough speaking it. So, um, yeah, I took a, a week long intensive Spanish course and in Mexico city and I'm definitely more confident, but I would need like 10 more weeks <laughs> to really master. Pero ahora tú puedes hablar conmigo en español, ¿sí? Sí, sí, un poco. Okay. <laughs> Perfecto. <laughs> uh, la próxima vez vamos a hablar totalmente en español y no en inglés. Claro. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, Posiblemente, okay, pero right. necesito practicar okay. mucho. Ok, si tú quieres, si quieres um, venir aquí en mi casa y hablar conmigo, nunca tengo oportunidad de, de usar mi español. 
So, si podemos hablar, está bien conmigo. <laughs> okay. We'll practice. We'll help okay. each other. Exactly. As I just said exactly. in Spanish. Um, thank you for being here. I miss seeing you. You're always out globe trotting. Well, I'm here for a while. I just, you know, you don't post on Insta when you're like sitting home <laughs> microwaving dinner. <laughs> this is also very glamorous. Exactly. You are wonderful. It's so good to see you. You and too, thank Chrissy. You, thank thank you. you so much. I feel like I had a therapy sesh. I, that's actually kind of part of the point. Yeah. I want people to come really here nice. and feel like they can talk about whatever <laughs> and it's comfortable. Um, next week we have Howard Bryant. Who, oh, you know who this? Yeah. He's a longtime sports writer. He was on ESPN for a while. Yeah. He has a book called The Heritage about the intersection of politics and race in sports. Oh, wow. okay. um, so we'll have him next time. But thank you all for listening and being great. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye.